Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, we find here John this morning in this chapter, and what might be described that his most esoteric, uh, difficult perhaps to understand, but I don't blame John. I blame the rubbish commentators uh, who have come before and have devised so many, as Chesterton said, strange and monstrous interpretations. Though there is some difficulty, perhaps, by God's grace, I may lay some of those difficulties to rest this morning. Revelation chapter 20, we're going to do so by going bit by bit. Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released be released for a little while. Thus far, the reading of God's words, you may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of God's holy word. Lord, we ask this morning that you would give us, above all else, humility as we come to your word, that we would be teachable, that we would be soft under the Spirit's work, that we might be encouraged and exhorted in our pursuit of the building of the kingdom for what awaits us even now, even after death, is the glorious resurrection that is to come, and not only of the righteous, but the unrighteous. But until that day, O Lord, would we be faithful that you might find us faithful, that we might see fit to glorify and enjoy you, laboring not as those who are longing for an out, but who delight even now in the plotting work of kingdom building, bit by bit, stone by stone, all for the glory and name of our King. We pray this in our King's name, King Jesus. Amen. We come this morning to Revelation chapter 20, and this is where it does, for so many, get weird, become complex. In fact, when we come to Revelation 20, we find the only usage of the word millennium or millennia thousand years here. Now, that does not mean that because this term, this idea, is used only in Revelation 20 that we don't have an idea about what it means. 1,000 is not a unique number in the whole of Scripture. It is throughout the Psalms and other places as a symbolic expression of Trinitarian fullness. And so as we come to our text this morning, we need to ask ourselves, and rightly so, what does John mean by a thousand years, and what does John mean by the bondage of Satan, the devil, in that great bottomless abyss? And what is the significance of those things for us today? It is impossible to even get away from that question 
What in the world does it all mean? And I will, with some or no small measure of humility, endeavor to communicate that this morning. I want to do so under two headings. The first, the binding of Satan. The binding of Satan. And then what the implication of that is. Secondly, what this means for the church. The binding of Satan, first. And then second, what this means for the church. Now, I will say, I endeavored to preach on the first six verses of chapter 20, and I divided that sermon in two, and I've already ended up with a sermon that is longer than, at least in terms of my notes, most. Um, I'm not doing that so you will feel the thousand years here, uh, but because there is much that we need to understand. Now, The first question that we ought to ask ourselves is, when and what is the millennium? As a reflection of the fullness, not only of time, but purpose. Now, this is where the millennial positions come in. And I have already given up, right? I've played the card up my sleeve, and I have confessed from the pulpit with some um, confidence that I squarely fall in the... Um, optimistic side of things. Now, um, if you want a very good source on the whole of this book and other apocalyptic sections of Scripture, um, then I would argue that Philip Kaiser, who is a pastor, uh, a teacher, and a writer, uh, is difficult to beat. And this is what he says about the three positions. The A in millennial means no millennium, no golden age on earth. In fact, most amillennialists see the thousand years as referring to what happens in heaven, not what happens on earth. Now, that's the amillennial. The pre in premillennialism means that Christ is coming back before a future literal 1,000 years, thus pre-millennium. The post in postmillennialism means that Christ is coming back after the world becomes Christianized, thus post-millennium. At least on these verses, those are the three main divisions. Now, when you think of the three main divisions, I want you to think of them as, if you've ever seen a yardstick or a a tape measure, the one-foot bold markers, one-foot, two-foot, three-foot. There's a yardstick. But between those three main categories, you have all the hash marks. And so what you find with many students of the Bible, many theologians, pastors, or just Christians in general is that they are somewhere on that spectrum of those three larger categories. Now, the purpose of this sermon series is not to win you to one of those particular main categories, though I would love for someone to bring it up at the next What's Brewing, and I would love to be able to um, apologize, as it were, in the um, defend position aspect of that, why I am overwhelmingly optimistic. But the fact of the matter is, the scripture speaks of this time in which Satan is bound. Now we'll get to that in a moment, but in verse 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6, this term, 1,000 years is found. We'll look at it again next week. Now let us be reminded that many of the sights and sounds of revelation that John relays to us 
are heavily symbolic in nature and expression, though there is one that is not symbolic here, as we will see in a moment, that has to do with the binding of Satan. My argument is this, that this 1,000 years, the language that is here, is not literal, but it is symbolic of something else. It is symbolic of that period of Christ's reign that begins with his resurrection and ends with his second coming. It is a fullness of the time that it takes for the purposes of the triune Lord to be manifested on earth. And it results in a number of things that I think will be accomplished. Number one, the Great Commission will actually be fulfilled. And it will be fulfilled through the ministry, the mission and work of the local church that are all united together that we call that one holy apostolic Catholic church. Christ does not send us out into the world with marching orders on a wish and a prayer in hopes that it might be fulfilled. In fact, when Christ sent Joshua into, and the Israelites into the land of Canaan, he gave them everything that was necessary. Now, the reason why Israel was not ultimately successful was because Joshua was but a man, and so to Israel, but a nation. Now that Christ has been raised and the Holy Spirit has been poured out on all flesh and sent out into all the earth, the Great Commission will be achieved. It is guaranteed. And not just in a kind of silent, subversive mission, but in the overwhelming building of what we would call Christendom, though that word has fallen out of fashion among many. Christ's glory like the mustard seed, and the worship of the saints, like the mustard seed and the leaven, will over time, in a plotting, that means step by step, stone by stone, slowly work itself through every corner of the globe. And so those who endeavor to apply the Rayo Croc method, remember what he did? He came in and he took McDonald's to their heights by applying a kind of Henry Ford method to food production, which sounds really great, doesn't it? <laughs> no. The church is like a garden. It takes tending. It takes time. So that one generation might not say the generation's past, look at what we have done, but rather one generation might say to another, Remember the covenant faithfulness of God. And bit by bit, year by year, generation by generation, God is establishing a kingdom that cannot be shaken. In fact, Douglas Kelly, in an article that he wrote for Ligonier Ministries years ago, and if you want to read a wonderful pastoral commentary on this book, Douglas Kelly's can't be beat in terms of a pastoral commentary. He writes, in terms of biblical numbers, ten represents fullness, and a thousand, kids, I was doing some math with one of the West boys doing factors of ten. Ten times ten times ten, you just add zeros to the end, it's a thousand. Hence, fullness times fullness times fullness. And not only that, 
but the significance of ten related to the identity of the persons of the Trinity. The fullness of God, holy, 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 we sing, speaks not only of time, but when the full manifestation of the work of the persons of the Godhead coming together to build the work of the kingdom, it is not a precise chronology, Kelly says, but God knows and his purposes will result in the successful work of the church. 1,000 then is not just a, an indication of time because it isn't to us, is it? It doesn't tell us anything about time. What it conveys to us is confidence that Christ is now at work and when that work is full, complete, he will come back. He will finish what he has begun. And in the same way, God is not on the clock as we often are, right? Children, have you ever taken a standardized test? All right, you've got three hours. And you think, three hours? I've never done anything in my life for three hours except sleep. And then when that three hours is over, you think, I could do with three more. I've got a lot more bubbles to fill out here on this test. God doesn't come to the end of time and go, oh, man, I forgot about Botswana. No, he has arranged all of the pieces in his decretive will to bring about the completion of his plan at the time when he has planned it. And this should be for us, we who do not know, an incredible encouragement that we know the one who knows. And so as it relates to the millennium, when is it? What's now? What is it? It is that period of Christ's rule and reign on earth that includes the binding of Satan, the devil. And that's what I want to look at next. Satan was bound through the ministry of Christ, specifically in the death, burial, and resurrection of the Messiah. This is what we read of in Revelation chapter 12. Michael the archangel sends Satan to earth in order to torment those within the city that God himself, or Christ, would judge in A.D. 70. Now the Bible speaks of the binding of Satan in many different places. And Christ himself speaks of it in Luke 10, in Mark 3, and in John 12. Elsewhere we find it in Revelation 12, as I just mentioned, and also in Hebrews chapter 2, and a host of other places. It refers to the, the consequence, the fruit, the falling out of the crushing of the head of the serpent. So when was Satan bound? Well, firstly, in AD 30, in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I would add to that this. What we find in Revelation chapter 20 chronologically follows the events of Revelation chapter 19 where Christ comes to judge Jerusalem and after judging Jerusalem he establishes in a very clear and a, you might say, redemptive historical way through the destruction of that institution that is the temple 
his global kingdom. And in order for the for the success of the mission of the building of the global kingdom to have success, the one who stands in heaven and on earth as the great accuser of the saints must be dealt with. Now, Revelation 12 refers to the binding of Satan that occurs in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Of this I have already spoken. Revelation chapter 20, and this may be new for some of you, refers to another binding of the devil in that place here mentioned. It is not just the casting to earth, Revelation 12, verses 7 and 9. I'll just read it. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, that's Satan, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Now, the reason that I don't put Revelation 12 earlier in human history say before the fall is because in the book of Job we see Satan in heaven talking with the triune Lord endeavoring to tempt and steal from Job the heart of his faith there is something that happens in Revelation chapter 12 that had not happened before that is related to the consequence of Christ's passion death, burial, and resurrection, and his ascension. And yet in Revelation chapter 20, there is a further judgment, a further binding that we have because it is described in greater detail. And look at the way it's actually described. There is an angel, he comes down from heaven, and he has what is in his hand essentially that which is used to put Satan in prison. He laid hold of the dragon. He bounds him for, or binds him for a thousand years. He casts him into the bottomless pit. He shuts him up and he puts a seal so that he can deceive the nations no more until he comes back. Now, we will get to that point later. What is the significance of the release of Satan? When is it and what does it result in? Now, we will look at that later because it is, it is connected to the resurrection stuff that we find in verses 4 through 6. But what is clearly expressed here through a more vivid, non-symbolic, nor metaphorical expression of the binding of Satan is the imprisonment of the great accuser of the saints who is now no longer free to do what he has set out to do from the beginning. Now, that does not mean that there are not those emissaries of Satan still set loose upon the earth. What do you call those? The angels that fell with Satan to earth, the demons. And the ministry that now belongs to the church is twofold. It is to secure that which God in his time gives to the saints to secure. That means we go out into the world and we preach the gospel to all men. And in preaching the gospel, there is a ministry of reconciliation and there is a ministry of condemnation. I want you to think of those dark places. 
And in fact, think of the ministry, ministry work of those missionaries who were sent forth, especially in the middle of the 20th, beginning, well, really 19th and 20th century. They grew out of the Reformation. Places like the tribal hearts of Africa or Southeast Asia or South America, where you had men and women and children who would fight wars and campaigns for the purpose of cannibalistic endeavors. Can you think of anything more depraved than the consumption of human flesh? And this is what they would do. Why is that? Because there was nothing of the light of the gospel that had brought transformation. Now, this does not mean that nations and people groups cannot move beyond the light of the gospel. For we are, as we live in this nation, quite cannibalistic as it relates to the simple, wonderful life. In order for us to have wealth, we often think in order to do that, we must do what? At the expense of another generation. In order to work in Hollywood as an actress, I need to have a number of abortions. You've heard many of these actresses confess. It was for my own well-being. Okay. <laughs> when all the movies they're in are rubbish to, belong, to begin with. What are you actually getting from it? The work of demonic activity on earth is real. And the work of kingdom building is not only to reclaim souls, but also to do what? To follow Christ in the casting out of demons. For where there is light, there can be no darkness. The mission and the work of the church is through the power of the ascended and risen Christ, by the power of the Spirit now sent into the world, to cast out demons in his name. How does that happen? Through the word of God preached. And the way in which we know, and we've seen this struggle, especially in the book of Revelation, is wherever the light of the gospel goes, guess who follows? Think of the garden for a moment. Adam and Eve... In terms of the chronology, when did Satan fall? When were Adam and Eve placed in the garden? What we know is this. When the pinnacle of God's creation was placed on earth, it did not take long for Satan to come in and spoil it. What is very easy for the church is to maintain faithfulness by polishing standards, orthodoxy. But what often happens for Orthodox churches, while we are polishing the marble of biblically accurate theology, is that Satan comes in and he steals away our hearts. And so preaching must be what? It must not only be biblically sound, but as the Puritans would say, it must not only be light, but there must be heat to that preaching. It must call people not only to one repentance, but continual repentance. Why? Because that is the mission and work of the church. And the significance of this moment of the binding of Satan is the endeavor, the mission and work of the church will be successful. What I am saying is this. Even as we sit here, Satan is trapped in prison. You think of that? The great enemy of the church 
the great accuser, is bound. I want you to think of that in contrast to what Paul says. I am a servant in chains, but the word of God is never bound. You know what often hinders the ministry of the church? The silence of her people. The apathy of those hearts who sit in pews. It's like offense with 350-pound linemen pushing against a high school junior varsity football team. Maybe you don't understand the sports metaphor. Sorry to some of you. There is nothing that can impede the progress of God's decrees. Nothing. In fact, what often impedes the progress of the church is our failure to take the field. So, concerning Satan's own power and work, Douglas Kelly writes again, something happens to Satan's ability to keep the nations of earth blinded from seeing who God is and what his gospel means for them. As a result of Christ's finished work in dying on the cross, in rising from the dead, in ascending to the Father, and in being crowned on the throne of glory, Satan lost his power to deceive the untold millions of pagans whom he formerly kept blinded to God's saving truth. Something has changed. This is why China at this very time is being Christianized. And they cannot stop it. Why? Because there is no power devised by men that can thwart the... Who, what are you going to throw at the Holy Spirit? And the great accuser of men is locked and why his emissaries roam the earth. Look at the angel who actually binds Satan. Where's his name? It's not Jesus. It's just an angel. It's just a no-name angel. And he has the keys to the bottomless pit. He has a great chain in his hand. And because he is an emissary of the resurrected and ascended Christ, Satan cannot withstand, with, with, push back, from the work of the binding of himself in that great prison. Now, despite the theological differences that exist in expositing and exegeting this text, everyone believes on some level, on the very surface, that the power of Satan is limited. And at the very least, that should mean... That as Christians, we will be successful in some fashion in the work of the building of the church. But I am telling you this. Every night we put our dogs in their crate. <laughs> and they cannot get out unless they are let out. Satan does not have the power to resist the one who has bound him. And all he does now is he awaits for that day 
When one day he will be released, he will endeavor to tempt the nations. Christ will humiliate him even further in that day of the resurrection. Satan awaits his sentencing. That the next great event in the life of the devil is to be cast into the lake of fire. And the last great event in the life of the Christian is the resurrection of our bodies in the new heavens and the new earth. So what I want us to do in light of this, what it means for us is stop being so pessimistic. Don't be so negative in your outlook on the progress of the building of the church. Now, I think one of the tendencies that we often have as it relates to our pessimism is related to our impatience. Because it's not happening at the rate we wish for it to happen, we say we use that pessimism as an exegetical hermeneutical principle that misinterprets the scripture. And we rob Christ of power because we don't actually believe his promises. So when let's just give an example of one of our church fathers, the patriarch Abram. Abram and his wife received a promise for a son. They did not get that promise when they thought they should have. It was taking a little while. And so Sarai turns to her husband and says, well, it looks like we're going to have to do this on our own. And she actually encourages her husband to sleep with her own maidservant. I want you to think of this as the church growth movement. I want you to think of this as the church taking... Principles that work in business, but don't work in the church and say, we're going to have to do this on our own, guys. The pastor's going to need a very active Instagram page, right? In order to reach the world. I, I jest, but that's sort of where we are. What we have done is we have turned the Great Commission that is deep and wide into this flat, meaningless 1960s-era marketing campaign. Because we are not patient. If Satan is bound, it should prompt in us and promote in our hearts not only patience... but joy in the journey and in the struggle. If I'm in a field and I'm endeavoring to put in a fence or mow the grass and I know the bull is out, what am I always going to be doing? I'm going to have a hard time focusing on the work because I'm going to be worried about getting gored. What Christ has said to the church in the book of Luke is, the bull is in the barn. Make hay in the field. I'm telling you, take your eye off the devil. Now, I'm not saying that the devil is not powerful in the working out of those emissaries on earth. What I am saying is we have given to him too much credit. And we have become so pessimistic in our building, in our understanding of the nature of the kingdom, that we don't look at the kingdom like a mustard seed that is in needing to be tended. But what? 
Like we have failed and the helicopters are coming to pick us up out of Saigon and we're just biding our time till we can take the last one out. That's a pessimistic view. So here is how I would endeavor you to work at Reformation OPC. Make hay. Work the field. Don't worry about the bull. The bull is in the barn. The strong man is bound. And he's bound by a no-name angel. What does that say? That the greatest enemy of the saints has no power compared to the one who is risen and upon the throne. Now, as it relates to the length of millennium, what have you heard? What is it always you hear? It's tomorrow. Why? Because threats work. Right? The clock is ticking. You see? You only have this much longer to do the work. Well, what does that create in the hearts of the saints? Not pessimism. Neuroses. I've got company coming over at six. I've got to put... The curlers in my hair. I've got to get the house clean. I've got to get my kids dressed so that when everybody comes over, they don't see that my whole life normally is a mess, right? Or the boss is coming to work. There's this sense of fear that pervades of panic. There is no evidence from Scripture as to the length of the times between his comings. The only evidence that we actually have is that it will come when we least expect it, on some fashion. That is, don't predict it, the thief in the night. So these futurists who spend their time saying, all right, I've decoded the Bible. The first person in history to ever, if anybody ever says, this is the first time this has ever been said, run. What is that advantage? What does it get you? An audience. It's like the guy who says, $10 a month, five minutes a day, I'm going to show you how to get shredded. No, you're not. You can't do that. It's snake oil. It is a way of getting attention. It is a way not of honoring Christ, but of invoking fear so that you might have followers. Now, I would argue that the notion of Christ coming soon is not supported in Scripture. I don't know when. But I do know this. Christ has called the church to fulfill the Great Commission in its entirety. And he will give us the time that is needed in order to accomplish that. Now that does not mean rest on your laurels. Just waste time. What it means is, to use the testing analogy... There were folks that I knew in high school that could take the untimed SAT. I'm like, how do I do that? Well, how did they do it? Well, they had some learning impediment. And all of the ones that I knew, no, I'm so sorry. Somehow you got your parents to get you into the untimed SAT. We have whatever time is needed in order to fulfill the work of the building of the kingdom. And we ought to live, to labor, to worship with a covenantal generational strategy for kingdom building. If we in principle say, as God says in the book of Deuteronomy, teach one generation to the next, 
then we ought to labor from one generation to the next. Think of it this way. My wife and I, we pour the foundation, and we teach our kids how to put up the studs. And then they teach their kids how to put on the sheetrock. And then they teach their kids how to plumb and put down the floors. And over time, this edifice that is the cathedral of Christendom will be built from one generation to the next. And the generations of men, let's say just the cathedral of Notre Dame, we're talking hundreds of years to build. And that's one building. We're talking about a a global spanning kingdom of Christ followers. And look at what's already happened in 2,000 years. Those of you who've done international travel, go. I, I was with a, a campus organization for many years, and one of the things that we would often say is, we're in more countries than Coke. And it was true. Christ is doing that. What I mean is, the fact that Satan is bound means that we have this incredible playground, field, harvest that Christ speaks of. Look, the fields are white in the harvest. And he has given us the time that is needed to bring in the harvest. Don't be hasty. Do you know what hastiness brought about in this country? An unethical church. Because it was a bunch of people that got on horses and rode around and had these revivals... And then there was no Christian discipleship. They just went from town to town, got people saved, and then left them with no elders, no ministers, no framework for how to live a godly life. That is evangelism and discipleship, both of these keys that Christ has given to us to unlock the kingdom. He has given them to us and he will give us the time to express them. And not only evangelism, but dominion. We will be successful in banishing from the earth the effects of Satan's deception. What does that mean? Evolution will go away. Now, there may be something that creeps up in its place, but this is why Christians should be scientists. Not the rejection of those things that the world says belong to them, right? You've seen those things on the sidewalks, science is real, water is life. Some of them I don't even understand. There are no illegal humans. Well, of course there are no illegal humans. But this is, these are the mantras of the world. Don't let them have these things. We must not think for a moment that we will fail. Now, there may be times where we will suffer setbacks. This is part of it. There have been great times of persecution where Christians have had to flee, like the diaspora in the first century church, or the Huguenots from France. But in the main, according to God's decrees, because of the binding of Satan and the length that God will give us to build his kingdom, we will be successful. Be cheerful then, be expectant, be faithful. And run the race as though it is, I don't want to say long, but but it is long. 
But the ray in which we run well in a millennium that Christ has said will last for many, many generations is to establish covenant faithfulness at home. Parents, the way in which your children will grow to love the church is if they see that the church, the corporate people of God, is not just a place that you visit, but it is the center of all Christian piety. Because we're going to need help if we're going to run for long and run hard and run well. We need the support of one another. So this morning, I want you to go away encouraged. We are safe in Christ. Satan is bound. And though we fight against these demons, though we preach a gospel that promotes liberty, though there will be those who will come against us, they are but nothing. Even kings are but sand upon the scales of time. Dear saints, let us run with faithfulness. Let's pray. Lord our God.